In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of truth, who art in all places and fills all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O gracious Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Can I place this here? It's a great pleasure to be with you this evening. Uh, I have to thank, although he's not here, Bishop Suriel of the Coptic Diocese of Melbourne. He invited me here to speak. I was welcomed yesterday at the University of Melbourne. It's wonderful to, 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 to see so much of Australia, but tonight it's a great honor and a pleasure to be with you. Uh, in the United States, we hear of Melbourne as the third largest Greek city in the world. Uh, I saw it today. It's a beautiful city. And Daniel, who has now uh, absconded with himself, uh, showed me such hospitality that if Melbourne is the third uh, Greek city in size, I have to say it's the first in Philoxenia, in hospitality. So I want to thank him very much for his hospitality, his, bish, 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 his grace, Bishop Ezekiel, and well, and all of you for coming to be with me, uh, to, to listen to me this evening. The title of my talk, as Daniel said, is Orthodox Hymnography and the Formation of Christian Character. I circulated a handout. If you don't have one, uh, you could share with a neighbor. Uh, if you can't do that, it's okay. It's not essential. It's just helpful. I had a professor in graduate school who said, when you give a presentation, give them a handout. They like a handout. So I followed his instruction. I want to begin in the year 565. Patriarch Eftikios of Constantinople added a hymn to the divine liturgy celebrated on Holy Thursday morning, which is, of course, the annual commemoration of the Last Supper. The hymn is one we know all too well. It's the first one on the handout of thy mystical supper, O Son of God, accept me this day as a partaker. For I will not speak of thy mystery to thine enemies, nor will I give thee a kiss as did Judas. But like the thief, I will acknowledge thee, remember me, O Lord, in thy kingdom. To thee, Pnusutu Mystiku. It's a famous hymn. I open with it for two reasons. First, notice what's happening. As believers are moving toward the conclusion of Holy Week, toward the wonderful gift of the resurrection, to whom are they likened? Who is put in front of them? What are the characters that are placed before their eyes? Two options are set in front of us. The first, I will not betray your mystery to your enemies like Judas. He is one option placed before us. The other is the thief who acknowledged Christ on the cross. So we're given a contrast between two options. One whom we're supposed to follow, one whom we're supposed to avoid. And it's interesting that the one whom we're supposed to follow is not John, the beloved disciple, a champion of the faith. It's not Peter, the leader of the disciples. It's not the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary. It's not the people whom we see as great, victorious followers of Christ. It's the thief, the penitent thief, is the one whom we're supposed to liken ourselves to. That's the first thing I want to say. The second is, notice the liturgical quality, the worship quality of the hymn, right? And we see this with a slight twist. The hymn is sung as we approach communion, and we're reminded of the loyalty of those required to follow Christ. 
And there's something special about that loyalty in the word mystery. I will not speak of your mystery to your enemies. The word mystery, of course, uh, can have many significances in early Christianity. St. Paul speaks of the mystery that was hidden before all ages of the gospel, of the message of Jesus Christ. But in the context of the liturgy, of course, the word mystery, mysterion, refers to the sacrament of the Eucharist. It refers to the Holy Communion that we're about to take. In other words, as people are approaching Holy Communion, in commemoration of the Last Supper, they're placed in the context of the Last Supper, and they're given two options to follow. Judas, who betrays the Lord, and although he partakes of the Supper, is disloyal, and the thief who right after the Supper announces Uh, his loyalty to Christ. The point is, all of this is put forward to us in a sacramental context, in a liturgical context. There's a wonderful new book on the hymns of the church called Liturgical Selves by a scholar named Derek Kruger. And one of the things he focuses on is how these hymns shape in us a liturgical self, an identity as a Christian worshiping in the liturgy. The purpose of that, of course, is not to confine it to the liturgy, but to be shaped in the liturgy when we worship God so that we live like that in the rest of our daily lives. We shape liturgical selves. And that's where I want to begin because I want to talk about hymnography as something that shapes a character within us. Of course, we do many things in our hymns, right? We worship God in our hymns. We say, holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal. We sometimes have very theologically complicated hymns, right, about the nature of the Trinity. But very often in our hymns and in our prayers in the church, what's happening is a Christian character is being formed within us. And I'd like to unfold the processes by which that operates. So let's take a step back a minute. Let's talk about biblical interpretation just for a minute. Because biblical interpretation is a wrestling match. It's a contest. It's a struggle. There's a wonderful poetic phrase that I heard once uh, quoted from a, a, a Greek author in which, uh, who said, I stayed up all night on the sea of your words, desiring its depth. From time to time, an angel descended and troubled the waters so they would not reflect my own face. Right? We have to struggle with the biblical text. We have to stay up with it all night. Sometimes the church fathers even refer to the biblical interpretation as an agon, as an agonizing struggle, right? And it is in two ways. The first is one I'm not going to focus on, but I'm going to mention it in order that we can get to the second. The first, of course, is the struggle to understand an ancient language, ancient Greek, and to understand letters written to people from one Greek city in the Roman Empire to another Greek city in the Roman Empire. We're struggling to understand an ancient language. We're struggling to understand an ancient culture. And so we have to wrestle with the text. And what comes forth from that are books, sermons, uh, scholarly articles, right? Scientific knowledge. And that is the first agon 
I want to mention here a quotation from a scholar who reflects on this Agon. She says, hermeneutics, that's just a complicated word for interpretation, right? Herminia. Hermeneutics is born in misunderstanding. And hermeneutics is no hobby for those with too much time on their hands. It is directed to very specific persuasive purposes carried out in agonized agon, agonized arm wrestling with language and its wily, untamed nature and with other readers who are similarly and inconveniently ungovernable. In other words, when we struggle to understand a text, we're wrestling with the text, we're wrestling with other people who try to understand the text, right? It's a wrestling match. That's the first aron. The second, though, is the one that I want to talk about. And here I'll go to another quotation very quickly and then expand on it. It's by a scholar named Paul Blowers who writes, In his Libra Sceticus Maximus' use of scripture likewise emulates the norm of the desert fathers, appealing to scripture almost exclusively as a mirror on the monk's spiritual agon and as a practical weapon. This is a different agonized arm wrestling. Here the struggle is not for the monk, not to understand all the 15 uses of a Greek word or all the 15 different ways an ancient Greek city would function. Here the struggle is to live the gospel. And you're not wrestling with grammar and history. You're wrestling with your own sins. You're wrestling with your own habits. You're wrestling with yourself so that you can be a living interpretation of the Bible. The first, Aaron, comes forth in books and scholarly articles. The second comes forth in a life lived a certain way. And that is a difficult form of interpretation, right? The Desert Fathers often talk about the fact that we can memorize all the scriptures. We can speak eloquently on their significance, but if we lack charity if we lack humility, if we lack self-control, our knowledge is worthless. We have to lead, our biblical interpretation has to lead us into a life lived a certain way. And the church knows this is difficult. The church knows this is a struggle. The scripture tells us this is a struggle. This is why St. Paul regularly says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me. To some people, this makes him sound arrogant. Right, But St. John Chrysostom recognizes that what St. Paul is doing is not being arrogant. He's encouraging his listeners, right? Because they might be saying, Paul, of course you can do these things. You're an apostle. You saw the Lord. You have a special charisma, a special gift. And Paul says to them, no. If I did it, you can do it. Be imitators of me. It's not a way, in other words, of elevating himself. It's a way of reducing himself to their level and saying, I'm no different from you. I've just worked harder. Work hard, and you can do what I have done. Be imitators of me. We look around us in this church, and of course there are many purposes of these wonderful icons, but at least one of them is to encourage us to imitate the saints. Well, of course, the hymnography of the church has this same purpose, to urge us to give us models to follow. And it does so by taking characters of the Bible, putting them in our hymns, and reflecting on who they were and how they lived so that we have something 
to imitate. So we have St. Paul saying this in the scriptures. We see the wonderful Iconis giving us something to imitate. The hymns do the same. And they do so by relying on ancient patterns of moral formation. Because in antiquity, of course, people are very concerned about what is the good life and how do you live it and how do you teach it. The earliest Christians tap into these resources They use what is available to them from their classical environment and they direct it toward the life in Christ. And in our hymnography, we see this in full flower. It's a beautiful thing. So to understand how our hymns work, I want to start with something from classical antiquity to see how our hymns place biblical characters in front of us so that we can imitate them and, and so that, that forms a Christian character in us. To see how the hymns work, I want to look at classical material. We begin on the first page of the handout with Plutarch, a first century Platonist philosopher. He used to be very famous. Most people don't know who Plutarch is anymore. But he used to be very famous. In fact, in uh, Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein, when Frankenstein was, was turned into a living uh, person, he was given three books to read. One was uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. Another was something from Goethe, the young Werther. And the other was from Plutarch. And these things were supposed to make him understand what human beings were. Because Plutarch wrote the lives of famous Greeks and Romans. Uh, But he didn't just write these lives because he was, again, sort of bored with too much time on his hands. He wasn't just trying to share funny stories. He was using them as a Platonist philosopher, as models for his pupils to imitate. And he explains what he's doing in the opening of his life of Alexander. He says, it is not histories that I'm writing, but lives. And in the most famous deeds, there is not always a manifestation of virtue or vice. On the contrary, it is often the case that a casual comment... A joke displays a man's character more clearly than a battle in which thousands fall. Accordingly, just as painters get the likenesses in their portraits from the face and the expression of the eyes where the character shows itself, but pay little attention to the other parts of the body, so I must be permitted to devote myself to the signs of the soul in men and by means in these portray the life of each leaving to others the description of their great contest. In other words, he's saying, look, you want to know about Alexander. I'm not telling you about every battle. I'm not telling you about every treaty. I'm giving you the man. I want you to have the, understand the essence of Alexander. And this is what animates a lot of early Christian biography. Look, at there's a very famous life of St. Anthony the Great, written in the 4th century by St. Athanasius the Great. And I won't read the whole quotation, But he says something very similar. He says, Since you have asked me about the career of the blessed Anthony, hoping to learn how he began the discipline, who he was before this, and what sort of death he experienced, and if the things said concerning him are true, so that you might also lead your lives in imitation of him, I receive your directive with ready goodwill. In other words, you want to know about Anthony because you want to imitate him. I will give you a portrait of the man so you can do that. Finally, the Gospels uh, in the New Testament have very much the same purpose. 
If you turn the page, you'll see the Gospel of John in chapter 20 draws to its close with a statement that many scholars see as the kind of thesis statement of the Gospel of John. This is why the Gospel of John is written. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Again, just like Plutarch, I'm not telling you everything Jesus did. If I did, the world couldn't contain the books. I want to give you, I want to show you that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. But why? So that you can have intellectual knowledge? So that you can be smart? No. So that you may have life in his name, so that you may live a new way. So in all of these, Plutarch, St. Athanasius, the Gospel of John, we see books written for imitation. In fact, just one other little example, the Gospel of Mark. It's often seen as the first Gospel written. And it just begins, bang, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there's a baptism. And it just starts out of nowhere with the baptism of Jesus. Why does it do that? Many speculate that that's because the earliest Christians who are reading it start to follow Jesus at their baptism. And so what matters to them is now I'm baptized. What happens? What do I do? So Mark, encouraging them with the Gospel of Mark as a kind of textbook of discipleship, we start with the baptism and now you'll see where your life will lead. You see your life from baptism onward by looking at Jesus from his life from baptism onward so that you can take up your cross and follow him. Again, imitation, the formation of a character, right? One last thing. You may be wondering yourselves, are we ever going to get to hymnography? One more thing and we'll get there, all right? Because Plutarch, after he tells us about positive examples to follow in hymnography, also tells us negative examples to avoid. Remember the hymn of thy mystical supper, right? I, like, I will not give you a kiss like Judas, but like the thief I will confess you. Well, Plutarch Gives us negative examples. He says, Ismenias the Theban used to show his scholars good and bad performers on the flute and to tell them, you should play like this man and you should not play like that. And as Antigonidas used to say, young people would take greater pleasure in hearing good playing if first they were set to hear bad. So in the same manner, it seems to me likely enough that we shall be all the more zealous and more emulous to read, observe, and imitate the better lives if we are not left in ignorance of the blameworthy and the bad. For this reason, the following book contains the lives of Demetrius Poliorkitis and Antonius the Triumvir. That's Mark Anthony, the ally of Julius Caesar. And then he says, the two persons who have abundantly justified the words of Plato, that great natures produce great vices. Right? In other words, I've told you, Alexander, I've told you about Caesar, I've told you about Cicero and Demosthenes. Follow them but don't follow these figures, right? So we get antithetical choices. As we saw in the hymn on Holy Thursday, this is often what our hymns do. It's often what the hymnography of the church does as well during periods like Holy Week. And I'd like to reflect especially on how this happens in the hymns from Holy Tuesday when the two figures that are placed before us are the woman who anoints Christ's feet with her hair and Judas. Two figures 
who are put before us to show us how to reflect on our Christian lives. And the way I want to unfold it is is to see how sort of at first this uh, unfolds like a drama and the characters of the drama are put in front of us. They are introduced as two antithetical choices. And so the hymns tell us, Loving God, the woman taken in sin approached you, pouring out on your feet myrrh mixed with tears, and at your word she is rid of the odiousness of her acts. But the disciple Lacking all grace, rejects it and covers himself in mire, selling you out for greed. Glory to your forbearance, O Christ. The woman is humble and repentant. The apostle betrays you. Another one. The harlot spread out her hair for you, the master. Judas spread out his hand for money. She to gain pardon, he to gain silver. Right? You see these antitheses. He to do this, she to do that. These are... Uh, things that have carefully developed and carefully balanced periods in hymnography. And there's the sort of thing that Greek and Latin poets would do in the period, the early periods of Christianity, but they would sit and do it over a flower and say, oh, one petal goes this way, one petal goes that, and it would be a beautifully balanced period. And you can see a culture that's sort of uh, looking for significance, looking for meaning. When Christianity sees these beautiful sorts of things, it knows exactly what to do with them and sets up uh, uh, the rich paradoxes of the Christian gospel in these Forms. So first here we get these antithetical choices. But once the characters are on stage, Judas and the woman who anoints Christ's feet, now they're on stage, they start to talk. And when they talk is when things get really interesting. Let's see what they say. The wily Judas possessed by love of money plotted craftily how to betray you, Lord. The very treasure house of life. And he says, what will you give me? To turn you over to you to be to turn him over to you to be crucified. Next, the harlot talks. As the harlot lovingly dried your undefiled feet with her hair, weeping, groaning from deep within, she cried out to you, "My God, do not cast me away or regard me with loathing, but accept me and save me as the one who alone loves mankind." That's not in the Bible. These words are not in the Bible. What's going on here? What's going on? Let's do one more example to see the depth of the repentance from the famous hymn of Cassiani, right? Lord, the woman caught up in a multitude of sins, sensing your divinity, assumes the perfumer's role, lamenting she provides myrrh in anticipation of your burial. Alas, she cries, for me night is a frenzy of excess, dark and moonless, a love affair with sin. You draw from the clouds the waters of the sea. Will you accept the fountainhead of my tears? In your inexpressible condescension, you made the heavens incline. Incline now to the groaning of my heart. I will cover your spotless feet with kisses, then dry them with my tresses. Eve heard those footfalls in the twilight in paradise and hid herself in fear. Who can fathom the magnitude of my transgressions or the depths of your judgments, my soul's Savior, and your boundless mercy? Do not reject me, your handmaid. This is a jewel of repentance. We see here the inner life of what a penitent person looks like. But again, it's not... In the Bible, what's going on there? What we have here is a rhetorical device 
That's incredibly common in ancient literature, and it goes under two names, prosopopoeia and ethopoeia. Prosopopoeia, the formation of a personality. Ethopoeia, the formation of a character, right? It's a rhetorical device where you uh, present someone speaking in a certain voice. Students in rhetorical schools, as they reached a certain level, once they understood very basic uh, grammar and very basic rules of rhetoric, would be told, now, have an argument with each other. But they wouldn't argue as the two people they were. They would say, you're Agamemnon, you're Achilles, now have a debate. And you wouldn't win a good grade just because you came up with a good speech. You had to speak like Agamemnon, in the personality of Agamemnon. Or you had to speak in the character of Achilles. That's how you got a good grade. Because, of course, in antiquity, rhetoric is the sort of thing... Aristotle says, rhetoric is a science that has no content of its own. Because it has to be applied to every other science. The art of rhetoric is the art of persuading in any situation. If you're in the law courts, if you're in the assemblies, if you're writing a treatise on any scientific thing, you have to know how to persuade. It's the art of argumentation. So you have to know how to be very um, nimble in your thinking, be able to speak in any context, be able to convince in any context. So you have to be able to speak in different voices, in the voice of others. This is something that the early Christians take up uh, very enthusiastically. In fact, in the letter to the Romans, it's often thought that St. Paul in chapter 7, when he says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. In the Reformation, this kind of phrase is seen as autobiographical. We see here Paul, according to the Reformation, wrestling with the fact that he can't fulfill the law, falling in despair before God and saying, save me by grace alone. People in antiquity and many modern scholars look at that and say, this isn't autobiographical at all. He is speaking in the character of a person before Christ. Because right after this in chapter 8, he talks about this, how the Spirit vivifies him and speaks through him and calls him forward to uh, the, the, the life that he expects in the future. St. Paul also says in his letter to the Philippians, and I'm paraphrasing, I was a fabulous Jew. I was better than all the other Jews, right? He shows no sign that he can't fulfill the law. He shows no sign that he's wretched and feels as though, oh my gosh, I can't do anything, I have to fall in the grace of God. What he's doing here is speaking in character of a person before Christ so that in chapter 8, he shifts now to the person who is after Christ, who is living the life of the Spirit. One other example. And this other example is a form of biblical interpretation. It's very commonly used by the church fathers, especially St. John Chrysostom, but it's a form of speech and character. And the way it works is, in St. John Chrysostom, you know how we, we often do this ourselves when we're trying to explain something. We say, well, it's like someone came in the room and said, dot, dot, dot. Or when you do that, it's like you're coming in here and saying, 
da da da, right? You're speaking in a character. You're, you're creating a voice and speaking in it to illustrate something. Well, St. John Chrysostom, when he's interpreting the Gospel of John, he gets to a point where the disciples of John the Baptist, and this is in the Gospel of John, the disciples of John the Baptist go up to him and say, John, that Jesus whom you baptized, he's gathering more disciples than you are. Shouldn't you be jealous? Right? And here, when St. John Chrysostom explains it, he explains it by getting into their minds, by speaking in their character to show this is what jealousy looks like. He says, even this, though, the evangelist presents graciously. For they went to John, he says, and they said, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan, the one to whom you testified, behold, he is baptizing, and everyone is going out to him, that is, the one, and here Chrysostom, in the bold on the handout, this is where Chrysostom is using speech and character. That is the one whom you baptized. At least this is what they imply by saying, the one to whom you testified, the one whom you showed to be magnificent, and whom you made a celebrity. He dares these things against you. The one who accepted the rank of your disciple, the one who was in no way superior to us, he has now separated himself and baptizes In other words, what St. John Chrysostom did is, in order that his audience in Antioch would understand what jealousy is and the jealousy that motivates these uh, disciples of John, he uses speech and character. This is what these hymns are doing. They're giving us an ideal type so that as we reflect, as we sit in the church and these hymns wash over us during Holy Week, or as they wash over us during other times of the year, especially during Lent and Holy Week, We're called to think, ah, that's what repentance looks like. Ah, that's what greed and arrogance looks like. That's what jealousy looks like, right? We're given these options of character put in front of us, and they just sort of wash over us, right? But they don't just do that so that we can see the inner lives of these biblical characters, right? We're not just looking at these biblical characters, we ourselves now are brought up into the drama, right? So remember we said in the first part, the characters are put on stage, the antithetical choices, Judas and the harlot. Then they start to speak. But after that, the hymns pull us into the drama, right? Because look at how they go. The ungodly Judas harbors covetous aims. Spare us his lot, Christ God, right? We're called up into the hymn. We hear the inner lives of Judas and the harlot to activate our inner lives so that we begin to reflect on who we are. Though I have outdone the harlot in sin, yet I have offered you no shower of tears, Master. Remit my debts as I cry, Savior. Free me from the foulness of my deeds. Right? We hear them speak. We see their inner lives to activate our inner lives. St. Athanasius the Great in the 4th century has a very famous epistle to Marcellinus in which he says about reading the Psalms. He tells him to read the Psalter for a thousand different reasons. And he says, these words become like a mirror to the person singing them so that he might perceive himself and the emotions of his soul and thus affected he might recite them. Each psalm is both spoken and composed by the Spirit so that in these same words, and this is where he gets to the key point, the stirrings of our souls might be grasped 
and all of them be said as concerning us and the same issue from us as our own words. When you read the Psalter and it says, Lord, I have cried out to you, hear me. Lord, have mercy on me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't read those as the words of the psalmist. You read them again and again and again and again so that those words become your words. This is again how the Bible works in the desert. There's a story of one of the elders in the desert who uh, is listening to the stories from the book of Genesis about the patriarch Jacob and he loses his son Joseph and he says, and he's lamenting and he's saying, oh, my son, my son. And the old monk just pipes up from the back of the church. Oh, come on, Joseph, you have so many other sons. Get over it, right? The point is he doesn't see any distance between himself and that biblical text. He's talking to someone as though it's a neighbor with him. The words of the Bible are the people in his conversations, right? The distance between him and the biblical text is broken, right? This is what the church does with so many of its prayers. You think of the prayers of Pentecost, right, which we just read. They go on and on, and it's almost as though we're being beaten down, right? Like rocks with the waves pouring over us, and you're saying, okay, we heard it. The point of this is not that God needs these words, but that we're saying these words. And our ego and our habits and our worldly thoughts and all the things that consume us are slowly worn away, like, again, the rocks that the waves hit and they become smooth and soft. That's what's happening to us so that whatever is in us that's resisting those words, that doesn't know how to talk to God, is broken down, and the words of those prayers become our words, right? And this is what the hymns are doing. We say them in the inner lives of these figures and these characters, so that they become our words. Lord, spare me from these deeds. That brings us to one of uh, my favorite people, St. Romanos the Melodist, a hymn writer in the 6th century. He uh, uh, is really the greatest poet of the Greek Middle Ages, right? We don't have a Dante in the Greek world, right, who combined uh, the great epic history with Christian uh, forms. Romanos is the closest, the greatest poet of the Greek Middle Ages of of Byzantium. And he wrote a form called the Kondakion, a form called the Kondakion, which we think gets its name from the fact that it's written on a scroll on a stick, a kondos, and so it's the hymn on the stick, rolled up in the stick. And we, uh, they, they would have been 30 stanzas long, very long hymns that would have been sung on the eve of a great feast. And uh, they reflect on the feast. And they're, they're basically um, poetic, hymnic sermons so that the people, as they're waiting for this great feast, uh, will have something to think about related to the feast. And we only sing little parts of them anymore. Some of them are the most famous hymns in the church, like uh, at Christmas, just the first part of his very long Right? Today the virgin gives birth. That's Romanos. From Pascha Ike and Dafo is Romanos. It's debated and da- it's, you know, scholars debate whether or not the Akathistos uh, to the Theotokos is from Romanos the Melodist as a Kondakion, right? But look at that again. It's that conversation, right? Between characters reflecting. 
We also see, uh, so we see Romanos throughout the year. Um, and the beautiful thing about St. Romanos is how he too, in his Kundakia, activates the inner mind of the characters from the biblical text and does so in a way that encourages us to see ourselves in these texts, to see ourselves in the biblical uh, uh, forms. And what he does is use different characters for different purposes. Right? Just one second here. For instance, in his Kundakion on the patriarch Joseph from the Old Testament, right, who is sold by his brothers into slavery and eventually becomes one of Pharaoh's uh, trusted assistants and can save his brothers. But before that happens, he is put in the house of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife seduces him and he escapes her because he refuses to sin with her, right? In his second Kodakion on Joseph, Romanos regularly has Joseph reflecting on his conscience and on God's omniscience. And this is the thing I mentioned Derek Kruger earlier. This is the thing that he focuses on. Because God sees everything, Joseph is aware that he must not sin even in secret. Because even if other people don't know, he's aware that God sees everything. Right? And, ev- and as I said, these kondakia are 30 stanzas long, but every single one ends with the same phrase. And it will go on and on and on, and then it will end with the phrase, the eye that never sleeps sees everything. The eye that never sleeps sees everything. Right? Joseph's conscience is very robust because he knows that God is watching him. There's an inner drama. We see him wrestling when Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him. But because God is watching him, he resists. What's interesting is that as we read through this Kondakion, if Joseph's conscience is clear and fine, the hymn writer's conscience is sometimes struggling, right? And he's wrestling with the fact that his conscience is not yet what it should be. And we see this on the last page of the handout in another hymn of St. Romanos, where the hymn writer, when he's talking about the ten virgins, says, pardon me, I lost my page. He says, Release me, release me, Savior, condemned as I am by all men, for I do not do what I tell the people and advise them to do. And therefore I fall down before you. Grant contrition, Savior, both to me and to those who hear me, so that we may uphold all your commandments in our lives. Right? Joseph's conscience is rich. My own conscience is weak. Be with me, Savior. Right? Finally, we see conscience again in the Kondakion on Judas. Because it's precisely the problem with Judas. The precisely the problem with Judas is he didn't obey his conscience. He didn't listen to his conscience. Right? He's even called asinivitos, unconscience. Uh, you know, a man with no conscience, and his conscience condemns him. Right? And this is why, with the harlot in the hymns we saw, with Joseph in the hymn of, in the Kondakion of Saint Romanos, we see people 
whose inner lives are very rich and very focused on God in order to activate our inner lives. Judas is the one to avoid. Because, you know, there's, we all know in our lives what we're going to do even before we do it. There's this moment, if you think about it, there's this moment when we're about to say something wrong, we know we're about to say something wrong, it's almost as though the next 10 minutes are played out in front of us and we still say it. We're, we're going, we're, we're tempted to do something wrong, we see the next 10 minutes played out in front of us, we could pause right there, but we do it anyway. What these hymns are doing is expanding that moment for us, helping us expand that moment so that it can become a very fruitful time for reflection, a very fruitful time to think of who we are, how we live our lives, right? On Saturday night, I'm going to talk to a group of Coptic youth uh, about uh, a problem that particularly afflicts us today in our contemporary society, and that's the fact that we are all kings, right? We're all kings. What does that mean? Blaise Pascal, in his Pensées, in his Reflections on uh, Life, he says at one point, have you ever wondered why the king, as soon as he stops his business for the day, immediately has to be entertained? He can't stop for a moment without the dancers coming in, without the beer being poured. The reason is, if he stops for just a second to think of the fact that there are enemies amassing on his borders, to think of the fact that his son is probably plotting to, to overthrow him. And if he's not plotting to overthrow him, he's probably an imbecile who will lose the kingdom after the king dies. If the king thinks about all of this, he'll be overtaken by despair. So for he can't even think for a moment about that sort of agony, about what his life really is, so he needs distractions. That's our problem today. For even a moment, a lot of us can't be distracted. I rail against this, but I'm the same way with that phone, right? You never put it down. But the phone is just a modern version of what Pascal was talking about, you know, a long time ago. The phone is not the issue. The problem is our desire to be distracted, our desire to get away from our, uh, uh, our humanity, there was actually a comedian in America who reflected on this and he was explaining on one of the late night talk shows why he didn't give his children telephones. And he said he was driving down the road once. He was going through a difficult time in his life. He was driving down the road and he started to feel bad and he reached for his phone. And he said, what am I doing? He put it down, he pulled over to the side of the road and he cried. But after he cried, he felt a kind of a catharsis and he said, that's being human. That's what it is. I felt human feelings. Well, for us, it's all the more important that we activate our inner lives because we're not just trying to get in touch with our humanity. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is inside you. We're looking for God, right? And if we're constantly distracted, never quiet, never at peace, we'll never find God, right? Abbot Emilianos of Simonopetra has a wonderful set of reflections on the Psalms in which he looks at the, 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 the comments of David who says, I sought you, O Lord, in the desert places. I sought you in the middle of the night. Right? He's not looking for God in the city. 
In fact, when he writes these psalms, he's in exile. He's running for his life, right? But he's looking for God in the desert. He's looking for God at night. These are places of quiet, of isolation, of separation. This is where we find God, right? In the evening prayer, in the quiet times. Now, for some of us, of course, life is complicated. Life is busy, right? We have duties. We have responsibilities. Absolutely. But we can find periods of quiet. We can find periods of silence. Sometimes we might even be around people. We might even be doing things. But we're reflecting on God. That's a silence. And that's what we have to activate. And that's what the hymns of the church are trying to activate within us. A sense in our brains, a space in our brains where we're thinking of who we are. Right? We're not just flesh and blood animals walking around acting on our impulses. We're Christians, right? And the kingdom of God is inside of us. The hymns are activating that inner life so that we can all the more follow God and find the kingdom of God inside of us. I have a few more things to say about Romanos, but I'll just say them to you rather than reading from his Kondakia. Well, I'll read a little bit. His wonderful Kondakion on the prodigal son is so beautiful because as he reflects on the return of the prodigal son to his father, he doesn't just see this as a son returning to his father. Like several of the things we've seen, he puts it in a liturgical context, in a worship context. He says as he begins the Kondakion, and again, it's, you can see it's many pages. As I said, these are long poetic hymns. He says, let us contemplate a supper magnificently spread for the former prodigal now become temperate for his father. That word let us contemplate is the key. We're not just reading the text here, right? Let us contemplate, activate your inner mind. Let us contemplate a supper for his father or rather the father of all mankind receives him repentant in his love Rejoicing at his repentance, he says to the slaves, Hurry, make ready the all-holy supper. Above all, sacrifice the calf, and this is the key, sacrifice the calf to which a virgin heifer gave birth. This is not a father saying, My son has returned, go sacrifice the calf. The calf who was sacrificed to whom a virgin heifer gave birth puts us in the context of Holy Communion. The meal is the mystical supper of communion, right? And the feast to which the prodigal son is invited to return is the Eucharist of the church. He says, because my son was lost before and now has been found. But let us celebrate he was dead and has returned to life, right? And he he at other places say, You know, let us celebrate a mystical supper, right? And then what's interesting is in the hymn, I'm sorry, in the biblical story, what happens is the brother is jealous, right? And he says, I was with you always, and you never gave me anything like this to celebrate with my friends. Well, in the Kundakion, the brother says, he doesn't say I was with you always. He says, um, he says, for so long a time I have been a slave to your will. I have always served your commandments. 
And not a single commandment of yours have I transgressed at all. You know, even if I do not say it, that what I say is true. I am oppressed unceasingly in desert places and deprive myself and tormented by the fiercest heats and by the winters that I may satisfy your power. This is not just some brother who's jealous. This is an excellent Orthodox Christian, an excellent monk who is fasting and praying in desert places who is jealous or angry that someone else is eating my supper. I am the one who is worthy of this communion. That person isn't. This is my supper. And you, Father, are unfair to give it to him. Right? It's about judgment in the church. It's first about God's joyous acceptance of all of us as penitent sinners. Penitent sinners, right? We're not just saying open up the communion to the whole world, but as the prodigal son is penitent. He repents and he comes to the church. Right? And God is waiting. And because very often, you know, when sometimes in our lives we might feel that for certain years we've gotten into habits that have led us away from Christ. And for we might think that we're miles away from him and years away from him. And what the parable of the prodigal son and what St. Romanos is trying to teach us is we might think we're years and miles away from him. But as soon as we turn, God is right there. God is not miles away and years away. He's right there waiting for us. Right? He's on our side. And that's another thing that St. Romanos gets to because as the, as the other brother is jealous and he says, why does he belong here? God responds, your brother cried, save me, Holy Father. What should I have done as I heard his lamentation? How could I not have pity and save my son as he grieved and wept? You, the prosecutor, I appoint as judge. Sentence me, my child. As you blame me and become my arbitrator, for I love humankind, how could, I, how could I now become inhuman? How could I not take pity on him who repents? In another kundakion, he says, you're right. I am not just. Human justice, where every sin is, is, is condemned, is, is not my justice. I'm unjust. I show mercy. My justice becomes mercy. Right? God is waiting for us to turn and repent. He doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to forgive us. Christ says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is what the Kondakion is teaching us. The final flourish, the final uh, 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 form of ancient classical life that comes through in these Kondakia of Romanos and sometimes in the hymns of the church as well is that it has what's called uh, a recognition scene, a scene of anagnorisis, which is also has often uh, reversal or peripetia, right? In the Greek tragedies, very often a mother and a child would have been separated for many years, and then they find, oh, I have this token that my mother gave me. And the mother says, I have this token that I gave my child, and they fit perfectly together, and it's a scene of recognition, Right? A recognition scene where someone is struggling to accept something, struggling to understand something, and then finally recognizes what the truth is. Right? That's what happened with the brother who was jealous. He's, after the father talks with him, the brother says, um, it says, 
When he heard these words, the brother was persuaded and shared the gladness with his brother. He's been resisting it, but he comes to anagnorisis, to recognition. And he began to sing and say, All of you shout with praise that blessed are they whose every sin is forgiven and whose iniquity has been covered and wiped away. I bless you, lover of mankind, who have saved my brother also, you, the master and lord of the ages. So again, we see a classical form put to use to dramatize the biblical text so that we can see ourselves in it. That's the point of this. In the hymns I talked about earlier, we saw an inner life activated to activate our inner life. Here we see the story of the prodigal son transformed. So it's not about a father and two brothers. It's about God and two Orthodox Christians in church, right? But the point of it is we see ourselves in it. In all of these ways, we're forming a Christian character in hymnography. I'll finish with last, one last flourish from St. Romanos. It's really, um, I had a student many, 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 many years ago. Now, well, I guess it's not that long ago. It seems like a long time ago. It was like 2005. Uh, that's a long time to me. But um, uh, he's the one who told me, we were talking about something else, and he says, you know, St. Romanos the Melodist talks about this, and it was a beautiful story about the prophet Elijah, Right? In, in, uh, in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah is miraculously just taken up into heaven. He, he's taken up right, right in front of, uh, of everyone, right? And so ancient Jewish biblical commentators and ancient Christian biblical commentators regularly reflected, reflected on where did Elijah go, right? Well, St. Romanos sets up a conversation, just like we saw here, this rhetorical conversation between God and Elijah leading up to the ascent of Elijah, where God is saying to Elijah, Elijah, teach my people, save my people, love my people. And Elijah is very judgmental. And he's saying, God, you have to kill them. You have to destroy them. They're sinners. And God is saying, again and again, it goes back and forth. God is saying, love my people, teach my people. And Elijah says, kill them all, right? He's very judgmental. It's pretty rough. But uh, at the very end, after this goes back and forth in all these ways, God says, Elijah, you're perfect, you're holy, you're sinless. You don't like to be on earth, come up here with me, right? You get to come up to heaven and we get the ascent of Elijah. But then God says this, he says, look, you cannot stand, you cannot bear to be with sinners, but I cannot bear to watch them suffer. So you come up here, and I will come down there. And then we get the last stanza of the, of the Kondakion is a reflection on what it means for God to take on flesh and to die for us in order to save us. And you see that Elijah's ascent means very little for the rest of humanity. What matters is the descent of Christ to save us, to become humble like us. The point of it being, if we want to imitate Christ, we don't elevate ourselves above other people we become as humble as possible to put ourselves uh, to come down to the level of other people and to save them. And here again, again, we see the point of it all is for us to have a model to imitate. And the hymns are given to us to form inside of us a liturgical self and a self that follows the models of Scripture and, of course, the model of Christ himself. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.
thank you, Father, for your talk. Um, my question is, I mean, I often relate to Paul as he talks, you know, the wretched man that I am, who can save me. Um, why, do, why do you suggest that he is talking from a character, not from a real perspective? Or did I misunderstand what yeah, you were saying? It's not so much that he's talking from uh, not a real perspective. It's that he has... So, yeah, let, uh, let me, that's a great... I'm glad you asked that question because I see that perhaps I went too quickly over it. So, uh, the Reformation understanding of Paul, the Mar- uh, promulgated by Martin Luther earlier uh, with Augustine, is that you have someone here who is trying to follow the law, trying to work out his salvation by doing things to earn salvation. And he realizes he can't do it. And so there's nothing we can do except fall on the grace of God. And so Luther says what the Catholic Church is doing is wrong. We, ha- we can't follow works righteousness. And so uh, we get the Protestant Reformation. Right? Because he sees Paul wrestling with what he's wrestling with. What, but, so it, it has to do with Paul's identity in relation to Judaism. Uh, following certain ancient figures and modern readers of Paul, I think that's not a correct understanding of how St. Paul understood himself. His concern was not, oh, I can't follow the law. What shall I do? Oh, Christ gives me the option of grace. That's not what it is. So it's, in that sense, it's not about Paul's personal struggle. As I said, he says elsewhere, I had no problem with any of this. I was fabulous at following the law. So, but that doesn't mean this isn't real, right? Because what you do see in St. Paul is a recognition of uh, what the, 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 the struggle of humanity to follow the will of God because of this inner wrestling match we have, Right? Uh, and that's that agon, to live the life of Christ. So uh, it has nothing to do with whether or not we can follow works righteousness or uh, whether um, uh, we're saved by works or by faith. I'm just separating it from that discussion. But what it does have to do is with the fact that um, uh, the world has changed, right? And the wrestling and the internal struggle is that although the world has changed, we wake up and it's not fully new yet, right? Christ hasn't returned. And so we're living in, uh, in between the times where we're new and yet we're still not fully renewed. It's not over. And there's this struggle now to um, live a new life in the same old world, live a new life in the same old body. And that's a struggle, right? So everything is new, And if everything is new, we had better act new. And yet, and yet, uh, it's very hard to achieve, right? St. John of uh, the Ladder talks about the ladder of divine ascent, right? It's 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 not over with a snap of a fingers. Oh, I'm a Christian now. Everything's fine. That lasts for about a minute and a half, right? It, uh, and there's a joke about priests, uh, uh, and since I literally just finished my first year as a priest, someone told me this, that for the first year, the priest fears God. Every year thereafter, God fears the priest, right? <laughs> right? Because as a lifetime struggle, 
Uh, all the Christian life is one of slow formation, right? Uh, we've, I, I don't, I don't know if we were talking about this. The sermon on the was it the Sermon on the Mount we were talking about? That uh, it has the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew has an impossible ethic, right? Uh, don't get angry ever. Don't lust ever, right? Uh, this is an impossible ethic because a, a, a realizable ethic is pointless. Right? That's not a new creation, right? Uh, it's meant to give us something to steer toward in the future, right? And in that, because of that, that we, because we, we struggle and we fall and we struggle and we fall, the more we struggle, the less we fall. And, but there is that inner struggle where we see within ourselves a humanity that is wrestling against the new life in Christ. Hypnography, how do we, through the hypnography, can we activate God within us in that silence? So through what you brought into the talk today. Yeah, so the point is, so, so we have this wonderful statement of St. Paul in his letter to the Galatians. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? Uh, we have St. Athanasius telling us uh, in the passage that I quoted, when you read the Psalter, don't read it like someone else's words, let those words become your words, right? So the more that the words of the hymnography of the church, the more that the words of the Psalter become our words and shape our character, uh, you know, you, you become what you say, right? You are what you say. Uh, and you can, there's certainly a level of hypocrisy for a while. I mean, hypocrisy, a great phrase of hypocrisy is, it's the honor that vice pays to virtue, Right? In other words, we're all hypocrites because uh, uh, it's hard to be virtuous. But the more we say these things, they form our character, right? Character is something that doesn't happen with the snap of a finger. It's something that takes time. Because our hearts and our minds are like concrete, right? And they, you have to bang again and again and again and again and again, right? That's the point. That's why we don't just say, oh, say a prayer, right? Well, we're going to come up with prayers that are not accurate ways to talk to God. We say these prayers over and over and over and over because it's so hard. Because the Christian life is like swimming. Yeah. And if you, if you're, you know, swimming, you have to be moving. If you stop moving, you sink. And in the Christian life, if you're, you have to be attentive. And when you stop being attentive, things happen, right? And so we say these songs over and over precisely because, one, it's hard for them to become meaningful to us. It's hard for them to, as you say, enter our consciousness. And then even once they do, it's easy to forget them. That's the great, I have no answer to this. I have no understanding of this. That's the great struggle of our existence, right? To have peace and the peace of God requires great effort and energy and activity, right? But, but look, uh, after years, it works. So the church is right to sing the same hymns over and over and over. Um, Father, um, a couple of questions, perhaps in two parts. The first part is um, the correlation between mystagogy and hymnography. Does one lead the other or is there no correlation? And secondly, and secondly, in terms of the actual hymnographers themselves, how long does it take or what is the process where the church recognizes the theology within the hymn and incorporates it in the services? 
Could I ask you to repeat the first question? Is there a nexus between mystagogy, that is what, uh-huh. and henography? Yeah. Is there a nexus? And if so, to what extent? Does one lead the other? And the second part is, what is the process, in fact, of a, of a henographer actually having their work incorporated in the corpus of the church's teaching and, and what it does? Yeah. So the second one is beyond my... Uh, I, I could find that answer, but I'm a biblical scholar who reads these things and reflects on them. I'm not necessarily a technical expert on the process. So I forgive me, you have met my ignorance. Uh, but I can find that answer. But um, the first one, yes, you know, uh, so there's uh, the hymns on... Uh, St. Mark the Evangelist call him a mystagogue, right? Because the writing of the scripture and probably also because of the writing of a liturgy he's considered a mystagogue. But the, the, the services that we celebrate are an aspect of that uh, ascent, right? Uh, St. Uh, um, Simeon of Thessaloniki, when he talks about the structure of the church, talks about how uh, you, know, you, you come in through the back and you come forward. And as you move forward, right? you're ascending to God, and then you hit the ekonostasion, right? And it seems as though it's a barrier, but in fact, the purpose of it is to help you recognize that on an earthly level, on the level of flesh, in human understanding, you cannot ascend to God. You have to first have a barrier and then uh, raise your thinking to a higher level if you want to enter into the divine reality, Right? So it's not a barrier, it's a bridge that causes you to rise to a higher level. I think the hymns regularly remind us of that, right? And so they're, 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 uh, the ter- I, I, I often use the word pedagogical, but that's the, I mean it in the same sense, psychological, mystagogical. Their, their goal, their purpose is to um, uh, take us from uh, earth to heaven, from death to life, from the flesh to the spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, it's certainly the case that the more we go back to these things, um, as we uh, encounter different things in our lives, they're meant to affect us differently. They might affect us differently. And so in that sense, we go back to them. But the, when, I, when I was talking about the repetition and the need to go back over and over again, I was talking about the fact that we're always singing the same hymns. We're always reading the same scriptural texts in order that we don't, in order that they stay in our heart, in order that they stay in our minds. That's what I was getting at. Uh, The point is to keep saying these things, not so much because you don't understand them, uh, but because you need to keep, um, uh, as I said, you need to keep swimming. That analogy of swimming where when you stop doing this, other things enter your mind, right? You don't have a choice. This is the thing. You don't have, it's like being in a war against an enemy that's attacking you. You know, you can say, uh, in America, we have this famous speech by this fellow, uh, Patrick Henry, where he says, give me liberty or give me death. Have you heard this? That's all right. He's very famous, but he quotes a passage from the Old Testament that says, wise men will counsel peace, peace, but the war has begun. In other words, they're attacking us. We don't get to say peace, right? And it's like that in our spiritual lives. Things are flying at us. We don't get to say, well, you know what? I don't think I want to engage in spiritual struggle but I don't want to sin. You don't get that choice. The war is on. They're attacking. You know, there is no peace. You get peace by, re- by returning again and again to refresh the water, to refresh the well with, as you say, the Lord's Prayer, with the hymnography of the church. That's what I meant so much more by the repetition, that 
you're constantly refilling the, the batteries. But it's, it's, uh, it's important for us to have personal prayers. Those are wonderful. But when the church comes together, there's a particular way that the church decides how we pray. All right? And it's based on the tradition of the church, which is not tradition in the sense of like, uh, you know, the tradition of my grandmother that we all get together on Sunday evening. It's that the church has reflected on what preserves the truth and what doesn't. And this is what the church has carefully, slowly decided. It was a great honor to be with you tonight. Thank you very warmly for your hospitality. God be with you all. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Thank you.